Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, defending the power of antibiotics. Every time you get a prescription for an antibiotic, it's pressing on the accelerator. You'll meet one researcher who's working to combat the growing threat of antibiotic resistance. Plus, the toll of police-related injuries in the United States, the new studies showing a sharp rise in violence, and why C-sections may be tied to a higher risk of obesity among children. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Friday, September 16th. I'm Amy Montemiro. And I'm Noah Levitt. We begin this week with a closer look at the growing problem of antibiotic resistance and how one researcher at the Harvard Chan School is trying to combat the threat. It's an issue we've discussed before, and the scale is significant. The CDC estimates that each year, 2 million Americans become infected with antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and around 25,000 will die. The reasons for this growing problem are complex, and so are the potential solutions. One of the researchers working to fight antibiotic resistance is Yonatan Grad, an assistant professor in the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the Harvard Chan School. He's also an infectious disease physician. And recently, the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation awarded Grad a prestigious Clinical Scientist Development Award, which aims to support promising junior physician scientists. My lab studies how pathogens evolve and spread through populations, and we use a combination of tools, including genomics, mathematical modeling, and epidemiology to do so. We consider three linked processes. First, evolution within a host during individual infections when a pathogen is subject to pressure from the immune system and uh, antibiotics and antivirals. Second, um, transmission from an infected individual to an uninfected one. Uh, and then uh, how the mechanisms of transmission and the interactions among people impact epidemic spread of pathogens at population levels. Antibiotic resistance itself is a broad term, and Grad says it can actually be broken down into two categories. He says there are bacteria that are intrinsically resistant to drugs, while others acquire resistance over time. A key point is that not every antibiotic is active against every type of bacteria. By intrinsic resistance, I mean that a given bacterial species doesn't and hasn't ever been susceptible to the specific antibiotic. And this may be because the target of the drug is not present. So, for example, vancomycin targets cell wall synthesis in gram-positive bacteria like Staphylococcus aureus, uh, but its target is simply not present in gram-negative bacteria, of which one example is E. coli. By acquired resistance, we mean the acquisition of resistance in a population that was previously susceptible. When we talk about the worsening problem of antibiotic resistance, we mean that previously susceptible bacteria are becoming resistant. And as they acquire resistance to more and more antibiotics, our options for treatment are diminishing. Take the example of N. gonorrhea, the bacteria that causes gonorrhea, and a pathogen that Grad has studied closely. It's a rapidly growing concern for scientists. According to the CDC, there are an estimated 820,000 cases each year, and more than 240,000 are antibiotic resistant. A recent CDC report highlighted a worrying trend, increasing rates of resistance to the last two available antibiotics, azithromycin and cefetrexone, that can cure the infection. So what can be done to combat cases like this? That's where Grad's work comes in, and he says that fighting drug resistance takes a three-pronged approach focusing on the key areas of diagnostics, therapies, and large-scale public health interventions. Grad says we need to develop better ways to identify bacterial and non-bacterial infections, which will help make sure that antibiotics are used effectively, and then go a step further by making it easier to see if bacteria can be treated. The other part of that, he says, is better understanding how bacteria spread among large groups of people. 
Hopefully with more information about the pathogens that cause infections, we can diagnose them more quickly. Uh, we can more rapidly assess their antibiotic susceptibility profile, and therefore we can tailor treatment with the appropriate antibiotics. By understanding how pathogens spread, uh, we can optimize our public health surveillance and interventions and design new ones that will allow us to lengthen the lifespan of the antibiotics. Grads is a key unanswered question in all of this is how does our individual antibiotic use relate to wider antibiotic resistance? A recent study in the Journal of the American Medical Association found that around one-third of antibiotic prescriptions in the U.S. are inappropriate, basically meaning those drugs should not have been used to treat a given infection. Grads says there's a growing movement of drug stewardship to reduce cases like this. And while efforts are being made on the drug side, some of the more exciting work comes from scientists like Grad who are working to decode bacterial genomes. By sequencing the genomes of bacteria and correlating the genomes with the uh, antibiotics to which they are resistant and susceptible, we can identify the genetic basis for resistance. And through a better understanding of how resistance emerges, uh, we aim to develop new diagnostics and antibiotics. The hope is that new diagnostics can aid clinicians in making decisions about which antibiotics to use and do so more rapidly. At a public health level, by integrating our knowledge about genomes from multiple bacteria together with our knowledge of where and when the isolates were obtained, we can start to infer the patterns by which they spread. The basic idea is that the genomes of these bacteria carry their history, a history we can learn through comparisons of many bacterial isolates, just like comparisons of many human genomes have been elucidating the history uh, of human migration, analysis of bacterial genomes can tell us where they originated and where they spread. It's this blending of many different disciplines and research areas that makes the work of Grad so unique and important. Grad says he was drawn to antibiotic resistance because of his experience as an infectious disease physician, seeing the patients and families who have had to deal with drug-resistant infections. But he was also drawn by the power of antibiotics themselves, pointing out that these drugs underpin the work that medicine does, and he's trying to defend their life-saving power. One way that I like to think about this is that antibiotics are like uh, gas in the tank. Every time you get a prescription for an antibiotic, it's pressing on the accelerator uh, and using up a little bit of that gas. A large part of the effort is to try to come up with new sources of gas, right? Try to uh, come up with new antibiotics. But in addition, we can explore ways to make the engine more efficient uh, and be more uh, uh, precise and uh, optimize the the uh, lifespan, um, the useful lifespan of each of these antibiotics. Some of Grad's newest research is focusing on methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, or MRSA. Many people carry it, but don't develop disease. But for those who do, drug-resistant bacteria can breach the skin and invade deeper tissues, joints, bones, or even the blood. Grad's award from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation that we mentioned earlier will support research to understand why some people benefit from a form of MRSA control, known as decolonization, which aims to remove MRSA from the body, and why others do not. There was a sharp rise in injuries tied to police officers and private security guards in the U.S. between 2001 and 2014. That's according to new research from the Harvard Chan School. Justin Feldman, a doctoral student in the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences, analyzed emergency room visits for people between the ages of 15 and 34 during that 14-year period. 
And in that time, Feldman found that injuries from police and private security guards jumped 47%. Because the data does not differentiate between police officers and security guards, it is difficult to know which group is specifically behind the increase. In all, Feldman's analysis showed a total of more than 680,000 injuries following legal intervention during the study period. Most, he said, fall into the category of, quote, struck by, meaning someone who was hit by an officer. Just about 1% of injuries were tied to firearms. Researchers also concluded that black civilians, and in particular black men, were nearly five times more likely to be injured than white men and women. Feldman says the research adds important new evidence to the conversation about police-related violence. This is the first nationally representative study that has looked at uh, change over time and rates and racial inequalities. And what it tells us, especially uh, the new finding that injury rates appear to be increasing over time, that's new information. Um, So the next step is to figure out why this is happening in this conversation about reforming police practices. Why does it appear that the injury rate is increasing and what can we do about it? And where are rates higher or lower? What's accounting geographically for this increase? We can't answer those questions yet. Feldman says future research would look for more specific racial data, for example, tracking injury disparities among Latinos or American Indians. He says it will also be important to collect more specific geographic data to more accurately measure trends in different communities. The federal government does not currently track killings by police, but last year, Attorney General Loretta Lynch did announce a pilot program that would count these deaths. There's a major global health success story to report this week. The World Health Organization declared the island nation of Sri Lanka malaria-free. It has been three years since that country's last case, but the road to eradication has not been easy. Sri Lanka nearly eliminated the disease 50 years ago, but according to the New York Times, the intensive public health campaign faltered, running out of money and falling victim to the country's decades-long civil war. The government is now focused on preventing imported cases of malaria. A key part of this strategy is offering free malaria and diagnosis care to any migrants who arrive in Sri Lanka. In Florida this week, public health officials are now reporting 70 cases of Zika virus in the state. It comes as Governor Rick Scott traveled to Washington, D.C., lobbying for federal funding to fight the virus. Lawmakers have now spent months wrangling over President Obama's nearly $2 billion request. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell did say that Zika funding will likely be included in a last-minute spending measure that will keep the government running when the federal budget runs out at the end of this month. However, this three-month continuing resolution is unlikely to provide the full funding requested by the president. Finally this episode, children born via cesarean delivery, or C-section, may be more likely to be obese as children, and that risk can persist through adulthood. That's according to new research from the Harvard Chan School. Scientists found that children born via C-section were 15% more likely to become obese compared with those born via vaginal delivery. In addition, individuals born via cesarean delivery were 64% more likely to be obese than their siblings born by vaginal birth. Nearly 1.3 million C-sections are performed each year in the U.S., accounting for a third of all deliveries. 
These surgical deliveries are usually reserved for situations where there is a danger to the child or the mother. Previous studies have suggested a link between C-sections and obesity risk, but they were either too small or lacked detailed data. This new study of 22,000 young adults addressed these concerns by controlling for other factors that could affect obesity, such as the mother's pre-pregnancy body mass index, while also taking into account whether a mother had previous cesarean deliveries. The exact reason for this link remains unclear, but according to Jorge Chavarro, associate professor of nutrition and epidemiology and senior author of the study, one clue may be the types of microbes that children are exposed to when they're born. When children are born, they become colonized by bacteria, but whatever bacteria they're exposed to at birth. In natural births, in, in vaginal births, the main type of bacteria that children are exposed to are the bacteria in their mother's uh, birth canal, as well as bacteria from the digestive tract. And those are the bacteria that first colonize the airways and that first colonize the digestive system of these children. Children who are born by C-section, however, are primarily exposed to bacteria in their mother's skin and to bacteria that may be laying around in the air in the operating room. So those are very, two very different populations of bacteria. And those differences in the po types of population of bacteria that are that children are exposed to actually end up showing in the population of bacteria living in their digestive systems uh, through the first few years of life. And what's also interesting is that the type of, of bacterial populations that are observed more commonly in children born by C-section have been related to worse utilization of energy and greater risk of obesity when we're looking at, at the association between bacterial populations and obesity in older uh, individuals. Chavara also shared with us an interesting story about the inspiration for this study. It actually came out of a discussion in one of his classes, and it turns out that Chavara was actually quite skeptical of the association between C-sections and obesity risk. Take a listen. One of the co-authors was a student in my, in my course on obesity epidemiology, and she was actually very interested in this question on uh, cesarean deliveries and upstream obesity. And uh, we were talking about what, what are some of the common methodological problems in obesity epidemiology. And this was, uh, this was one of the perfect examples of, of what, are the pr what are the methodological problems that can lead you to the wrong conclusion. And I was absolutely positive that we, if we did the study right and we, we accounted for the right potential problems that many of the st studies had had in the past, uh, there would be no association whatsoever between cesarean delivery and, uh, and offspring obesity. And to my surprise, and I think to the surprise of many of us in, in the group, uh, that was not the case. Uh, so I, I think I've moved from being a complete skeptic about the fact that there would be an association between cesarean delivery and, uh, and offspring obesity uh, to being uh, being willing uh, to be convinced that this is in fact true, and I think I'm, I'm more on the side that uh, of thinking that this strengthens the literature that was observed before, and especially after being able to compare siblings uh, who differ uh, primarily on on type of delivery. Chavarro says one of the concerns around C-sections is overuse of the procedures. In the U.S., there has been a growing trend to use this method only when medically necessary. But in other countries, Chavarro says C-sections are often overused, sometimes for convenience. For example, in Mexico, the C-section rate approaches 50%, while in China, it can range from 70 to 80% in some areas. And that's all for this episode of Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Amy Montemiro. And I'm Noah Levitt. A reminder that you can always find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher.